G'day, and thanks for listening to this episode of Chewing the Fat with CB and JY. Today, we chewed the fat with AFL physiotherapist Brenton Eggleston. Brenton has had an impressive career at the elite level, and in this episode, he takes us behind the scenes of both the AFL and English football. We chat about managing elite athletes, recovery at the elite level, the role of hands-on treatment, ice, injury prevention strategies, and more. Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you haven't already, and you can find us on Instagram at chewingthefat underscore podcast, where you can see even more content and get involved in our Q&As. Hope you enjoy. G'day guys and welcome to Chewing the Fat with CB and JY. Today, myself and JY are Chewing the Fat with Brenton Eggleston, AFL physiotherapist currently employed by the Melbourne Demons. Welcome JY and welcome Brenton. Thank you. Thanks for having me, fellas. Thanks for having us, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's host. a pleasure to be in your house. You're, you're, you're actually my co-host, JY, if you didn't realise, mate. No, oh, I know. Well, that's why you invited yourself over to my place, because what was that? The dog was making too much noise. Yeah. the Yeah. Didn't trust her to not bark at the door. So, yeah. slash, I just want to invite to your apartment, because yeah, it's in a lovely part been, of the world. Yeah, you've been here enough. So. It's not actually your apartment anymore. It's now the Chewing the Fat studio. Well, literally, this so, is where the magic happens. Exactly right. The magic, the magic happens, and I've sat down, been delivered a beer. I feel very welcomed. You are, you're always a guest in my house and a friend, so... <laughs> That's how we do it. So, Brenton Eggleston, um, pleasure to have you on the show, mate. Good friend of mine, but even more importantly, you've uh, had some amazing experience working at the elite level as a physiotherapist, firstly for the North Melbourne Footy Club, over in the UK for Norwich City, the Canaries, and now currently for Melbourne Demons. Um, tell us your story, mate. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your career. Um, well, it would be remiss of me not to mention uh, my story begins back way when we were little young'uns in um, primary school days, Chris. Uh, when you moved over from another primary school <laughs> and he was not the cool kid that joined St. Francis, I can give you the hot tip. Um, there was an incident where a car, a car ran over your toe on your first day of primary school <laughs> when he was trying to make some new friends. Our, our good friend Mitch uh, was witness to that. So that was a great start for Chris and uh, I's friendship. That was, yeah, that was the first introduction to, so, to me and my group of best mates when mum ran over my foot <laughs> on my first day. So thanks for letting the listeners know that. No worries. Who over it? Mum. <laughs> In the driveway. So that's where the journey, that's where the journey really began. Um, but no, yeah, so uh, studied um, physiotherapy obviously with yourself, Chris, at La Trobe, um, and then worked in private practice and, and shortly after that joined North Melbourne, as you, as you said, for a few years, and then um, an opportunity came up to uh, over in the UK at a soccer club, Norwich City, and decided to take the leap of faith, um, you know, move over, always wanted to work overseas, just didn't think that it would probably happen quite that soon, but took it... Um, when it, when it presented itself and then went over there for two years. It was a great experience. Didn't know too much about soccer um, when I, before I moved over. I, was a, I watched a little bit of it, but um, definitely fell in love with the sport being over there. And then uh, it was time to come home after two years, uh, you know, visa slash just time away from home. And then um, shortly after coming home, there was another opportunity that came up with uh, the Melbourne Football Club, the Demons, which I was very fortunate, sort of right place, right time. And then joined them about 18 months ago now, 
and then it's been a bit of a roller coaster as uh, everyone in probably the whole world has had over the last year. But um, you know, being on pause the AFL season, so being stood down and then back on board and then moving up to Queensland, shifting your life up there, I think it was for about three months, um, which was both good and bad experience. Um, and now we're back. Uh, we're currently end of pre-season and, yeah, hopefully going to have a normal, whatever that is, you know, whatever that looks like, a COVID normal season. So the Cats uh, getting knocked out in the third week of finals. Well, yeah, actually, actually it was the fourth week of finals last year, so that wouldn't be normal. Wasn't a normal season, no. Cats are ageing. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to... Slow down a bit, but we won't won't mention that. Chris gets upset. <laughs> You've been telling me that the Geelong year has been over for ten years, Brenton, but uh, we're still up there, mate. <laughs> that is a common phrase of mine to yours to you, isn't it? Now, before we get into the interesting stuff, well, this is interesting, but I nearly called you Pencil accidentally. Um, your name is Brenton, but you are known as Pencil. Um, yes. Can you tell us why, mate? Um, definitely not that interesting a story, but uh, <laughs> when I was, I think probably sixteen. Um, playing open age men's footy and as Chris can attest to I was the quite a skinny teenager hadn't seen the inside of the gym yet um, and playing out on a wing probably not trying to get snapped in half and um, my coach at the time when I gave him a bit of cheek back to try and sort of get one over him because he was a school teacher as well um, of ours sort of thought it'd be funny to tell the whole team to call me pencil because it looked like I was going to snap on the footy field um, probably did to be fair <laughs> mm-hmm. and then uh, it stuck through the footy club my brothers were there and then it's just been uh, sort of moved around different environments that I've moved to by social connections and every elite athlete who you work with and treat now all call you pencil yeah because a couple of players know my brothers and it's just sort of been passed on so yeah it's stuck so yeah I think it will be like that forever probably I reckon it it's amazing be. how that works eh nicknames just you never lose them I know I reckon there we go. <laughs> um, all right, so, mate, I know you've got a number of stories for us, like working behind the scenes at, at the elite level. Um, we want to hear all about that, your experiences with obviously all three of the big clubs that you've worked at. But I reckon to start, mate, can you tell us what's a, a typical day um, or a typical week look like for you working in elite sport? Yeah, sure. Um, so obviously diff- differs when I was in different clubs or different sports, but currently at, at Melbourne, um, a typical week, you know, we've just finished pre-season, so again, it's different pre-season, in-season, so a typical pre-season week for Melbourne currently would be a, a Monday, Wednesday, Friday would be classed as main training days, and they're your big long days where you, you put it, put in a shift, um, uh, you know, uh, just during pre-season, so get in at maybe seven, um, if you wanted to exercise yourself, you might be in earlier, six or something. But in at seven, get on the computer, sort of pl- start planning the day. You probably start seeing your first athlete come through around 7.30 um, on the physio bed. Pre-training, it's um, sort of short, sharp appointments, either just a little uh, mobilisation here or a um, little release of something that they feel they need before training or a check-up to see what they can actually do that day if it's going to be changed. So hands-on treatment, you mean, by mobilisation and, and release? Yes, correct. So, yeah, yeah that would be the terminology for different um, techniques that, yep. that you'd use. Nice. Um, that athletes might require. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and assessment as well, like I said. So my, my role is the rehab physio. So I work more closely with the players who are, who are currently injured and, and not with the main group. So some of them are sort of a day-to-day prospect that I'm assessing and... and, and um, working out in conjunction with the other staff of what they're going to do that day so that might be the first sort of hour of the day and then 
approximately 8.30, the players would go into um, mindfulness, um, which is a form of meditation that they do. Really? Um, yeah, so led by the sports psychologist generally, and they, pro- they do that at least three times a week during pre-season for about 15 or 20 minutes. That's awesome. Uh, and then, uh, then in the, into their training meeting, and while that's going on, um, the physio and the uh, performance team, we're meeting to go through the list to decide what the training um, modifications from the main group, each player, what, what, what their sort of um, mods will be. Players come out of the meeting, and then there's a prep um, approximately hour, and then that's when you're taping, again, maybe some little uh, mini treatments, so to speak, um, for players that need it while then they're sort of going through the gym doing their own activation with glute bands, stretching, um, mobility work that they need, or maybe some form of gym loading to warm them up, you know, if they like to do uh, warming up their Achilles or patella tendons, etc. And then that would be at 10 a.m. out on the track. In pre-season, that would be at least 10 till 12, 12.30. And in that time, the rehab players would be over to the side ticking off their work, whether it's running, agility, you know, football, skills, conditioning um, with myself um, and the um, head of sports science, um, head of strength and conditioning, Zoe Salwan, um, who I work closely with. He'd run the, the rehab and I would help him. And then the main group come off the track, 12.30, um, have an hour for lunch um, where some guys are icing. Sometimes they might go into ice bar straight away. And then from 1 or 1.30 um, for three hours, they'll have rotations where it'll be Education, so they've got an hour meeting with the coaches regarding gameplay and strategy. Um, they'll have an hour recovery block, which that'll be physio treatment, um, massage will be available, or they might do some hot colds. Um, we've, lucky enough, we've got a sauna this preseason that, um, that's been installed, um, or some extra stretching, and then an hour of a gym um, strength training that would be run by our, our head of strength, um, David Watts, um, who does a great job with them. Players that then roll out by about 4.30, um, 5 o'clock, and then we'll probably have at least another uh, 30 to 60 minutes, just debrief, computer work, notes, um, things like that. So that's your Monday, Wednesday, Friday, which are your long days, and then Tuesday would be a half day, um, more touch work, skill work, um, treatment, um, off-legs, extra conditioning for players who need it, um, and some strength work again, typically upper body. Thursday would be a day off, um, where we would just treat players as needed. So maybe one of the three physios would have to go in and maybe two of us to do some treatment and assessment on players that's needed. And then Saturday would be a conditioning session, typically hill running. Um, our high performance manager, Darren Burgess, um, likes to run that model um, where he'll get them doing hill sprints um, on a Saturday morning and then Sunday off and then, and then do it all again. So that's sort of how the pre-season looks. Nice, mate. And big difference compared to in-season, I'm going to imagine, in terms mm. of training loads and focus from, you know, fitness and S&C work to recovery. Yeah, correct. Spot on. So you're getting shorter days, um, you're getting less uh, training loads, so trainings are going shorter. So on a typical Saturday to Saturday week, um, seven-day break, they'd play on a Saturday, Sunday would be own recovery where they'd, um, or potentially a group recovery session depending on the week, then meet at the beach or the pool. Um, Monday you'd be in it'd still be a, a, a fairly long day but they would be just doing what we would um, phrase a, a flush run or people call it recovery run or um, people call it game plus two different different terminology but they would just do a light jog and some touch work but they would still get a lift in and they would have a team review which obviously goes for a fair bit and lots of assessment 
of players that have issues in treatment. Tuesday would be a half day similar to pre-season, that craft day where it's more um, skill-based training rather than lots of um, movement or you know high training running loads. Um, again, that'd be a half day. And then Wednesday would be a main day, which basically runs like the previous day I said in the pre-season. Your long day with typical big training load. Thursday off, and then your Friday um, would be called your captain's run or your game minus one session or your activation session. It'd be a team meeting for, about strategy. Um, again, some treatment, um, some uh, gym work for guys that need maybe some extra upper body um, size put on. Uh, and then um, the skill-based work would just be light touch and a, and a jog or maybe some walkthrough strategy and then get ready to go for game on Saturday and then do it all again week on week and until you uh, get knocked out, which hopefully is deep into September for us this year, but well, that'd be the aim. Hasn't been deep into September too often recently, has it, has it for you, mate? No, not for the demon. We just missed out last year, but I think, <coughs> I think we're on the up. I have positivity. One mm. thing that always interests me is how does the week change depending on what day the game is? So if you're playing on a Friday night, how does that change the training loads in the leader? Yeah. Or a Sunday yeah. you've got that extra day. How does it all sort of shift? Yeah, absolutely. So different clubs do it differently, um, but it definitely shifts. Uh, the models that I've always seen is that game you work back from game day, regardless of day of week, um, and that would be where wherever the game falls, um, the day before is still the captain's run, wherever that is. Two days before is the day off, and three days before is the main day. So that means that, say, for example, you... Um, play on a Sunday and then a Saturday, so it's the six-day break. You then still have the Monday off, but then you're in that Tuesday for a recovery, and then the Wednesday becomes your main day. So all of a sudden, you've obviously got a day left recovery, uh, day less, sorry, recovery, and then that becomes where you then, your main session's quite light, so you reduce your training load. So typically, um, it, it may be that you're doing an eight or nine kilometer training session on a Wednesday when, you, when you've got that seven day break that might drop down to a 5k less um, sprint um, exposure and less high intensity work just to allow that extra recovery but then you'd still have the Thursday day off and the Friday captain's run um, there are a couple of clubs that I know that I've never been at a club but that do um, a fixed day off um, to allow players to have um, interest areas outside of footy so they have a Wednesday as a fixed day, for example, where they know they can plan uh, some work in a different industry or plan their university classes and things like that. It's set, and then they just manipulate the training days around yeah, that. Nice. Um, which I think, yeah, it's probably, I think, good from a lifestyle perspective right. and outside of footy, but, yeah, probably the floating schedule, if you want to look at a pure prep for game, is probably better, so weighing both of those up I suppose I, I don't make those decisions that's above my pay grade <laughs> I don't think there's much above your pay grade is there? Oh, top of the chain <laughs> COVID's hit hard my friend it's interesting to see how like depending on, I'm going deep here but depending on what day the game is how conditioned players are on different days the amount of injuries that might happen on a Friday in comparison to a Sunday at different clubs depending on how they structure mm. I guess or their mm. conditioning like it just it would be well. I don't. I, I can't tell you about the injury rate specifically, but an interesting um, uh, research that was done by a colleague of mine, um, Tanya Gallo at North Melbourne. She looked into the wellness data. So wellness data being the players reporting each day. How fresh do you feel? Like clubs do it differently. How fresh do you feel? Um, 
or how prepared he ready to train what's your sauna score things like that yeah. um she actually uh, gathered data i'm not sure how many seasons but multiple big data set of multiple seasons to see what the trends were on shorter breaks and bigger breaks etc and what she worked out which was interesting and shows you the sort of the power of psychology was regardless of the 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 break the general trend of how sore and ready they were the biggest determining factor was when the game coming up was so it would for for example on an eight day break uh four days after that the the game previous they would be reporting similar soreness and scores than if they were on a six day break it would be two days after the game Mm. so they've almost got the psychology looking forward so it's like you've played on a friday and then on the on the uh, Saturday Sunday on the Tuesday four days later they're reporting the same as if they played on the Sunday yeah. to the Tuesday if the game lead up was the same day. Yeah. So it's almost, it's almost like they get themselves ready no yeah. matter no matter if yeah, it's going to yeah, be nine yeah. days or, or six days they feel as ready as they need to be. That's probably the conclusion you can make. The, um, the psychological component to physical preparation mm. is, is still so underrated, mm. isn't it? Well, and also in the hubs last year, we were playing five-day breaks. No, I don't think we played multiple in a row, but we, I think we, uh, no, we did have two five-day breaks, I think, in a row. Mm. And, like, before COVID hit, that would have been unheard of, mm. like, in AFL football. It's been done in soccer for years, but mm. if you had said to athletes that you have to play, on, I mean, there used to be, I think, maybe Anzac Day, sometimes mm. fell on, like, a five-day break, and there'd be yeah, this big Tuesday, story Wednesday. about how yeah. they're going to get up, they're going to be the sorest athletes ever, and... Yeah, I just saw that, yeah, I mean, there was increased soreness and we couldn't train much between games, but the players did it. They got through. Shorter like, quarters may be different. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, I think that probably is definitely a component um, mm. component to it. But, I mean, if you had longer quarters, would they have just coped anyway? Would they have just got through? Um, mm. So that's the thing, like you're saying, the psychological aspect, to, they'll just get ready because yeah. they're, they're competitive beasts. They'll be ready. Yeah. Um, I normally much prefer giving you shit pencil than pumping up your tyres, <laughs> but um, for a 29-year-old man, you've achieved a hell of a lot, mate, in your career. There's not too many people that crack into the world of elite sport um, in the medical profession, is it, is it physio, particularly so early as you did, and, and particularly you'd all worked at, at three clubs. Um, I know you're passionate about your job. I know you love what you do. What have been your career highlights um, to this point? Yeah, I, I suppose the first thing that comes to mind um, I work in team sport and it sounds cliche, but you just want to win games. Um, and I say that all the time because like you put everything into the club that you work for um, and you want, to, you want to do your job well, but you just want to win games. You just want to be successful. And uh, I think everyone involved in, in the club would know that. So probably the, the only proper success I had was at Norwich where in my second season there, uh, we managed to win the, the title. We were in the second division um, of the English soccer called the championship and we had a really really good season obviously and exceeded expectations and finished on top and that was unreal um to just be part of that and play a very very small part um but just to feel like involved and you know that's what you're working towards so that was incredible big party celebration in the city meant a lot to the city of norwich which is a shout out to norwich very small town in east anglia um i'm sure you've got a lot of listeners in East Anglia and in the UK? Uh, we've covered Kazakhstan, Morocco, um, Tanzania, Mor- Mor- Mauritania, Mor- Mor- Germany. I'm not, not sure if we've yeah, got any okay. in Norwich yet. We'll, we'll, we'll get one. After today, we will, surely. <laughs> all your former <laughs> colleagues. <laughs> so, yeah. All the Canary supporters. Yeah, all the Canary, great Canary. They're on top right now. Yeah, they're they're a huge season. Yeah, yeah, 
So yeah, shout out to them. But uh, no, that was de- that's definitely a highlight. Um, you know, winning a title, being involved in that, the celebration, you know, what it meant to everyone. So that was incredible. Who was the manager at the time? Still the manager, Daniel Fark. Ah, of yeah. Course. So he's from, Daniel from what? Germany. Yeah. Uh, F A R K E. Yeah. Daniel Fark. Suppose we're allowed to swear on this podcast. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Well. Um, no. So yeah. So that definitely a career highlight. <laughs> and then probably the other thing that comes to mind, which was from my time over there as well, from a physio specific perspective that you when you uh, something that I felt like you know you contributed to maybe more than a team success was um, a player who had um, ruptured his ACL um, and was probably on the lower end of the list you know at Norwich and he wouldn't um, be upset with me saying that you know he was give us his name for our future Norwich listeners Carlton Morris uh, his name so he was Carlton Morris uh, if anyone knows the soccer system, he was loaned out to other clubs. He wasn't really getting a game at Norwich, but he came back to Norwich to do his rehab. I worked quite closely with him, obviously within the multidisciplinary team of the docs and the other physios, but I, I had a, um, a lot to do with him. And we rehabbed him and got him back to play, and he had a good, successful end to the season of a few games, and then following that, um, got a new, I think it was a three- or four-year contract to another club, Barnsley. So he was a bit worried about his career and where it had been and hadn't cracked a regular spot. And so now he's playing at Barnsley. He scored, I think, last week, actually. So, yes, feeling like, you know, you've contributed to an athlete's journey in, in some way and, and potentially, you know, help them um, re-establish, you know, um, their dream. You know, it's probably you know, similar to when you work with clients, Chris, that's probably the, the main reward we get, really, that you feel that you're contributing. So... Yeah, that, that comes to mind as well, mate. Yeah, fantastic. The um, promotion celebrations, mate, mm-hmm. obviously a big deal to the city. Talk us through that, mate. How were those, <laughs> how were those couple of days? Who was the MVP? What can, what can you share? Give us some insights. Oh, the MVP. Um, there was, we, there was, so there was an open-top bus um, that they uh, drive through the city um, and all the players get to... Uh, go on top of the second level, the open roof, and, and spray champagne. And um, we we rocked up, so we had a fairly big night celebrating on the on the Sunday night when it was all secured, all the staff and players at, at a private function. And then we were told to meet at eight a.m. the next morning at um, the um, stadium to then hop on the bus. And our staff sort of thought, why are we coming along? Why why do we have to get up at eight a.m. to get there? And then when we got there. They said uh, the staff are up top too, so they just shuffled us all on, on top of the roof. Like we just, you know, were unexpected. And then, uh, so we rode the the uh, uh, open top bus through the city, which made you, yeah, it made you feel a bit part of it. It was probably something that maybe is not usual practice. I'm not sure, but the players definitely wanted to make everyone feel involved. So that was incredible. Um, champagne over there was, I think, hundred thousand plus people, you know, lined through the city, yeah. um, and then. The first thing that comes to mind was our, our cap, club captain, Grant Hanley, um, standing on top of the the front carriage of where the driver is, um, which is definitely unsafe. Um, <laughs> holding the cup, there's a photo of it actually holding the cup over his head while it was driving through the city. So that was a, there's a photo that I really uh, uh, enjoy looking at when he's standing up holding the cup. So that was a great moment as well. But yeah, it was good. It was good. It was, And then it was even better after that. Um, the next day or the day after when as a performance team physio and high performance manager and sports scientist we could sit and have a quiet drink and um, have a little cheers and you know just enjoy each other's company um, so that was that was really that was probably just just as big of a highlight you know mm-hmm. 
um, that you've contributed to something um, as uh, you know big and important as that. So yeah, it was great. Mm. One, that? yeah, that's crazy. That's insane. One thing <laughs> that always like sort of interests me as well in the uh, in the Premier League that we don't get over here in AFL is the. I guess the different cultures and the different mm. ethnicities you get amongst the playing group. As an Aussie mm. bloke working over in another country with heaps of different nationalities going together, mm. I guess, on your treatment table, how do you go with just communicating with them? Yeah, absolutely big challenge. Um, probably the f- uh, first even like a month or two of getting over there, definitely could pick up the vibe that like you're you're the stupid Aussie you don't like and you know they wouldn't say that but they would say things like you don't understand soccer well they, they wouldn't be football. far wrong I was gonna say they would call it football oh, you don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly well yeah far I didn't know the tactics no but uh, when you're trying to give rehab advice there definitely was um, you know uh, the feeling that they would you don't understand the sport you just don't get you know this is not how we do it things like that um, from the players from the players. Um, but I think that um, the way to get around that, and I just approached it like I probably would have in any environment, is you just um, just win their respect by just being genuine. And it sounds cliche, but you just you're not trying to um, uh, undermine them. You're not trying to um, uh, you know um, you know dob them in or anything to coaches that they're not doing the right thing. You're genuinely trying to help them. Um, and when they sort of find that out, which you can't. You can't um, get that within the first week or two by yeah. just telling them. It takes a few months. And then when they figure out that you're actually just a, a bloke that's just trying to help them get back and you, you are genuinely uh, caring, then I think that it probably just naturally yeah. uh, naturally flowed from that. But then to touch on the ethnicity thing, definitely um, a massive challenge I found was so going from footy where, yes, there's different backgrounds and um, people of different personalities, but... There's probably a very narrow spectrum, um, you know, when you've got the 45 blokes on, a, on an AFL list. There's some country and city blokes, but, you know, blokes have been around footy clubs, so to speak. Yeah. Um, it's not much different to local footy clubs. There's a few um, people, outliers and things, but um, you get along with generally most of them, whereas coming from uh, then when I get to the soccer club, there's, we had a big German contingent that came because of the coach, yeah. and, and we had a, a guy from Spain and Finland and... Um, uh, Ghana and uh, you Finnish know, superstar the Finnish superstar yeah absolute legend of a bloke as yeah. well um, Timu Puki so um, big fan of the show he is I think he's a big fan I'm yeah. a big fan of his he's scoring <laughs> scoring easy as anything he's taking the piss um, but yeah so those they definitely had from a physio perspective different expectations different ways that they think things should be done um, and so Probably the biggest thing I learned was just respecting that and uh, probably had the view before going over that um, I had my philosophy, It's the, this is the way it should be done and um, this is the way it's done in AFL and that, you know, um, it's potentially, you know, in quotations, world leading in sports science, it's got a good name, so sort of stick to that. But I learned that there's many ways to skin a cat, so to speak, um, and the way that people are doing it's not... Um, not wrong or right, but definitely learn to um, how to be a bit more subtle in bringing your philosophy and, and nudging people into the direction of things that you think are important, but respecting how they want to go about things as well. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. Um, obviously, you've 
you're starting in private practice, you've actually got your own sort of clinic on the side, Enhanced Sports Physiotherapy, which we'll give a shout out to and put a link in the show notes. Um, Doing good things down there at Enhanced. But how does your role and what you do professionally differ when you're dealing with an elite athlete compared to when you're dealing with an everyday person who may present with exactly the same injury, for example? Yeah, um, for sure. So probably the um, biggest difference, I think, so thinking about when someone... um, gets injured at the football club or private practice and initial uh, appointment. The biggest difference would be um, the aspect of a multidisciplinary team and, you know, some um, doctor, physio, sports scientist. So even in private practice, obviously, as you know, Chris, you want to refer on to other practitioners, doctors, specialists when needed. That would happen probably not very regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at an elite sport level, someone gets injured, you might die, you might assess them to try and uh, diagnose the condition. Um, but the big difference straight away is that you're either while you're assessing or so shortly after, another physio is going to look at it, um, a doctor is going to assess, have input, they're probably going to call maybe another specialist to that so they have their opinion. So straight away, even from the very in, uh, initial, you're having conversations about everyone else's opinions and you need to take them on board, um, including coaches, um, there's experienced um, people from strength and conditioning and sports mm-hmm. science in rehabilitation, they might have seen these injuries before. So that I think is both a massive uh, pro, uh, positive, but also I wouldn't say a negative, but challenging um, at the same time. Um, I think uh, in amongst the staff that I'm currently working with, I'd say uh, no, but there is uh, definitely egos in professional sport, you know, and come to think of it, I, probably everyone's got an ego to some mm. extent and the, the challenge, like even for myself, you know, um, an athlete has an injury and we're coming up with a management plan and if uh, the, the other practitioners have come up with a plan that, you know, it might be slightly different to mine, it's me then having to check my ego and think that plan's going to get the outcome I want or probably most likely. It's not what I would have done, so do I need to say anything? Should I, am I going to be confrontational and debate it? Well, probably not. You need to realise that the outcome is the most important yeah. thing. Yeah. So I would say, yes, I mean, there's got to be egos, but it's just as long as you've got the right mix of people, there's enough that you can converse and, and come up with the plan. Um, so that's a, it's a challenge. It's definitely a positive because you learn a lot from speaking to some really experienced practitioners, but it's challenging, you know, what course of action you're going to go down if people are differing in their opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the uh, probably the other thing is also, which is... Um, maybe a bit more obvious is the the time pressure so elite athletes all straight away there's going to be pressure on on getting them back from them the coach their manager their parents depending on how young they are Um, their teammates even may be pressuring um, other staff so um, it's going to be that balance of you obviously wouldn't work in elite sport if you weren't pushing uh, the envelope a little bit and trying to get them back as quick as possible but you also some need to balance out is this going to put them um, at risk of further injury or potentially slow down their recovery on the back end so um, we talk about in our practice um, uh, Chris you know yellow flags or, or um, you know um, psychological factors biopsychosocial factors so to speak that influence how people report pain and, and how they recover um, straight away, when you see an elite athlete, there's big flags. It's their livelihood. It's their it's their whole world contract situation, win loss record. So 
every injury is going to have these big yellow flags. <coughs> so that's mm. a big consideration. Um, yeah, they're probably the two two of the biggest things. Mm. Um, and pro- oh, probably um, the um, education side as well, I would say, is a bit more challenging. Uh, you know, uh, in clinic, someone has come, they've probably paid uh, good money, they've pro- all been referred, and they come to you th- expecting... Uh, a, a good result mm. um, and expecting you to help them out. So when they get in front of you and you uh, and you educate them and you provide uh, your management plan, most of the time they're going to be on board with it and think that um, what you've said is uh, really informative and and, um, and like what you're doing, you know, most of the time. Whereas in elite sport, it's probably a little bit more that they've been exposed to multiple physios, they've been told multiple things by a coach, um, other staff, other physios, even you know, on the same day. So then you trying to get your, you know, what you think is the most important information to them and educate them can also be challenging from that side. Yeah. Yeah. I just, um, just a thought on that as well. Now, I know obviously you come into private practice, especially for yourself, mate. Like obviously they know they're coming to see an AFL physio most of the time, but in, in a private setting and they're an everyday person. Um, still non-compliance is going to be an issue. In, in the clinic all the time. Like there's going to be a select handful of people who don't listen to what you say, don't do the rehab exercises, come back and that's going to interfere on the result that they get. I'm going to imagine that at the elite level, you've got a bit more authority because it is taking up a greater portion of their mm. life that non-compliance isn't as much of an issue. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, or there's still some athletes who are like, well, stuff like this guy says, I'm going to go and do my thing. I know more than him. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would, yeah, non-compliance um, is, yeah, not that big of an issue. Um, it can be, depending on the personalities. Um, I would probably say that it's more of an issue than people would think. It's not um, every every athlete is the biggest professional and you tell them to do A, B, and C and it's all ticked off. There's still corners cut, for sure. Um, I think AFL, um, I've only worked in two sports, but in speaking with colleagues that work in, in different sports around the world is probably one of the best in terms of compliance and professionalism. Um Probably from what I've heard up there as a general with rugby union um, as well of being super diligent. So from that side, it definitely um, becomes a bit easy. You've got colleagues that can deliver the same message and supervise them doing everything. But you still have the challenge of, yeah, um, they need to be educated on why they're doing it um, or they might not value it. Is it just a tick box exercise that then means they're not doing it to a high quality or they're just uh you know which is going to make a big mm. difference to how um the exercise or the intervention that you prescribe sort of um impacts do you mm. find like this is a tricky one but like the better the player or the more naturally gifted the player is they sometimes can sort of rely on the natural talent rather than the hard work so say for example coming back from an injury and this is coming from a physio that i know who used to work with qpr um, he said that, which is Queen's, Fresno's, Queen's Park Rangers in the UK, <laughs> another championship site. Yeah. Nowhere near as good as Norwich, though. Um, <laughs> but he said that uh, a few of the big dogs there, they would sort of rely, obviously, on the natural talent. But when it came to managing injuries, it was the stuff that I'm all right. Like, oh, I'll just rest it and let it heal and I'll be back by, you know, next week or something like yeah. that, rather than actually working. And some of the ones who um, kind of had the biggest setbacks or weren't as talented were the ones that would work hard to get back from this. Do you see that a lot, um, I guess, in either sport? Have you seen that? Yeah, I, I would probably tend to agree as a general rule. Um, 
different between soccer and AFL, but from the time that uh, I spent overseas was, yeah, I think that probably the players who were, not necessarily if they're the better players in the team, but mm. how just naturally talented. Yeah. Some, of the, some of the players who were the better players might actually be really hard workers. Yeah. And you can see that they have sort of, you know, grind out their, you know, um, their career. But the players are naturally super talented and skillful and, and quick. Probably, yeah, as, you know, as a general rule, would maybe be less professional with the extra mm. 1% as and diligent. Um, and yeah, maybe that's because that's how they've always sort of gone about. It's always succeeded for them. Um, but I would say in AFL, um, it, you get a mix. You get a mix of players of how hard they want to work um, to get back from rehab. Um, and that's just, that's part of the challenge, like the education, um, which I think um, definitely my colleagues at Melbourne do really well, in, like getting buy-in from the players, that they have to work hard. That's going to be their best result yeah. in the long run. Um, but generally, it's pretty good amongst the, the Aussie rules players about how they um, mm. how they go about their rehab. Yeah. Um, a few more physio-specific questions mm-hmm. I've got for you, Pencil. Um, the first one now... We touched on manual therapy earlier, manual therapy being hands-on treatment. And in a private practice setting, a lot of people come to physios expecting a hands-on approach. They expect some sort of hands-on treatment to them to walk away and make them feel better, right? Mm. Now, as you're very well aware, there's been a bit of a growing debate, particularly fueled by, I suppose, the popularity of physios now going onto social media to share their opinions on whether manual therapy actually has a place in the physio world. Now, for our listeners, the reason why this has come about is hands-on treatment is something that doesn't have a lot of um, evidence or efficacy behind it in the research literature to say that it's actually effective in managing injuries. And for that reason, a big part of our profession has gone out to social media and says, you know, manual therapy is no good. We shouldn't be doing it. You know, why are we wasting our time on something that doesn't have, little, doesn't have much evidence? And they only want to focus on education and exercise-based rehab. And on the other hand, we've got all of these different physios and even people from similar professions, similar allied health professions who are so for manual therapy in there, do all their marketing and promoting by, you know, videos and photos of, you know, massage and manipulation and dry needling and electro dry needling and cupping and fire cupping and all these fancy tools that they swear by, right? Um, and there's become this debate and this divide in our industry. Now, mm-hmm. I want to know where you sit on manual therapy, on hands-on treatment. Does it have a role? What's your thoughts? Yeah. I'm going to be the very, very boring diplomatic answer and say that of I'm course. absolutely in the middle. Um, but I have very strong reasons for that. I think that, yeah, obviously we've seen that growing trend, Chris, um, and lots of physios have spoken about it, but I think, personally, I think the, the hands-off, I don't do manual therapy, I just give exercise intervention has become maybe a little bit trendy, you know, to, you know, um, for physios to, to sort of claim that they're being um, the most evidence-based practitioners um, that there is, but um, to go a little bit technical... Um, as you would be aware, Chris, like the evidence-based practice that all therapists get taught, the, the triangle of evidence-based practice um, with patient preferences as one, um, uh, clinician experience and scientific evidence. They're, they're three equal portions of the triangle. Um, and so that, that's what all clinicians are taught. So if you, yes, the science might not show change um, in manual therapy impacting maybe the way that people think, but there's two other big important mm-hmm. um, parts of that triangle. Mm-hmm. So I think manual therapy absolutely has a place. I've, I've seen it myself. It changes pain states. It makes people feel better. Maybe feels um, more mobile. Um, um, but then the other side of the coin, uh, as I said, I'm strongly in the middle, is 
um, where I think the problem with manual therapy um, or hands-on treatment is not the technique. I don't think any people's manual therapy is actually causing any damage. I think that it's all about the language. Um, Education behind it. Correct. Why we're using this, what is it doing? So it's the messaging of why you're using it, um, how often you need to use it, and what you're actually impacting. So that's where it goes too far the other way that um, I am fixing you, you rely on me. And, and I think that it probably is a natural human instinct to, fit, to feel, uh, to want people to feel like they rely on you. You want people to feel like you're impacting them positively. So if you get off the table and the client says, wow, that felt so good, my back feels free. It feels good as a clinician. So you want to do that more and more and more. It feels good when you're lining your bank balance as well when people are coming back two or three <laughs> times a week and you're, you're not actually educating them as to what the manual therapy is doing. Massage which is probably my well, biggest, bigger there. issue yeah. with yeah. Uh, with the industry. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think that that's the problem. It's the education and messaging around it. Yeah. And, um, and I think that in, in elite sport, from what I've seen at least, that there, um, as a general generalisation, I think that previously it was very hands-on focused, lots of treatment, lots of massage, the more treatment, the better for recovery. You know, um, athletes have heaps of time in the day, so the more they treat, the better they're going to recover. But at Melbourne at least, and I think a fair few environments that, again, from colleagues I've spoken to, is a trend towards that middle ground of we have massage available for recovery, but your best bet is to train, train hard, train consistently. You get treatment just as an adjunct. It's not the be all end all. You don't need five and six massages a week. You need one or two if you feel sore. If you don't want a massage, don't get one. Rather than I've seen previously, you're forced, you have to get three one hour treatments a week as part of your recovery because they think they're being professional. So I very much sit in the middle. Um, I'm, I use manual therapy daily as a physio. Um, but again, yeah. It's trying to educate people that exercise is going to be the long-term solution. Great answer. Love it. <laughs> exactly That's as you said. Brilliant. <laughs> I'm just you know, an, in awe. an example just today was a player we've got returning from a um, midfoot, big midfoot injury, had surgery. It's taken six months to recover. He's going to play his first game on um, on Monday. Can we name drop or not? Angus Brayshaw, yeah, big shout out. He's had a big fan of the show, Angus. Yeah, big the old, old Haylebury boy. Really good training boy. Haylebury boy, is he? Haylebury boy, yeah. Oh, Jay Wise, mate. One of the most intelligent footballers or athletes I've come across. Nice. Um, very, very smart man. Shout yeah. out to Angus. Shout out to Gus. Um, but an example, so he's had treatment on his foot mobilisation, soft tissue therapy, you know, uh, probably four times a week through his rehab. Um, he's had stiffness, he's had some soreness ongoing. He's gotten to the point in the last couple of weeks we've started to actually wean off. So rather than just say you're not getting any, I've said to him, if you feel you need it, 100% will treat you. Um, but educating him that I think that your foot's in a really good place. It doesn't need the hands-on pre-session unless you feel stiffness that you need mobilised. And we've made a deal that after Monday, he's not going to get treatment until the end of week. So even if he feels stiff, he's not going to get any manual therapy until the end of the week leading into the following game. So it's just a weaning off process, and he's, he's all on board with it. He understands completely why. Yeah. So it's just that education and not, not building reliance, I think, where it can mm-hmm. go the other way. Something else that's somewhat controversial in the physio world, um, historically we've all been taught to ice our injuries. You see it written all over physio clinics and sporting clubs and gyms that you know the old rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation when you've had any sort of injury. And it's something that I think it's just been accepted for decades that this is what you need to do. But there's been this growing trend and it's not even that recent really that you know the whole old thought behind icing an injury was 
inflammation is present after an injury. We want to numb that because that's going to numb the pain and we don't want excessive amounts of inflammation and that's going to help us you know, rehab properly. Whereas now there's this whole sort of thought process where, well, inflammation is a part of the body's natural healing responses. Why would we want to curb that by icing an injury? And there's a lot of people that are completely anti it and saying that we're actually slowing down recovery. Mm. Um, I still see that, you know, all the time an AFL player pings a hammy, they go off on the bench, they get, you know, they get an ice pack straight on the hammy, they, you know, sprain an ankle, ice pack straight on. Um, is this still part of your management of acute injuries? And, and what's your thoughts on, yeah, mm. how that should be? Yeah, I, I definitely uh, think it still has a place. Um, but I, de- I also have trended um, away from it being routine and used for every single injury, I agree. Um, one of the things that was probably more common practice was not just after they injure a hamstring, but through their rehab, you know, every time they would have a training session, and I'd seen it, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they would train, they'd ice the hammy for their, for their three-week, four-week hamstring, or they would, do, they would do loading in the gym, they would ice their hamstring. So that's definitely something I and we as a club have gone away from. What? Um, but, you know, one reason we think that it's focusing from a psychological point of view nice. that something is wrong, yeah, nice. something is broken, it needs fixing, um, it needs to be, you know, um, cared for more than the rest of their body. And two, yeah, I don't think in, in that specific example, I don't think that inflammation is playing a role in delaying any recovery, mm. so, so from a muscle point of view. But where I do, so it's probably pathology-based, injury-specific-based. Injury I still use ice uh, after acute injuries. I, I think that where there's going to be swelling involved, specifically joints, typically um, if you're going to try and turn them around in the short term uh, from an ankle sprain, so to speak, or, or a knee ligament injury, swelling is often going to be the limiting factor if they can push a one week or two weeks you know, um, quicker than maybe healing timeframes would allow. So we want to try and limit that. Um, yep. But um, something that I... Probably only gone away from in the last year or two was um, icing tendons, so tendinopathies. Uh, I just, I, I, I don't think there's any evidence that shows one way or the other, but just I've found that uh, even from personal experience, uh, having a sore tendon, you play a sport or you do have a run, and then it's icing it, then you, you sort of are sore after, you're stiffer, you know, you go to stand up, I don't know if you've had, had that experience either of you two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, with yep. te- a tendon pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've, I now tell, tell my guys, if they really want to, I don't tell them not to. But if they say, should I ask my patellar say No, just leave it, let it adapt to the session. So again, the boring answer of being on the fence, but yeah, <laughs> recu- yeah specific to the injury, um, uh, but definitely trending away from it, yeah. Our motto on this show is, it depends. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> that's such a good answer, isn't it? I reckon we used it about eight times in it, the past two pods. It's a good answer if you can explain why it depends, yeah, not just yeah, by sure. saying, oh, it depends. Sure. What well, do you do, Jay, with your clients, for example? Like, should I ice this? You know, should I not? You? So the first thing I do, obviously, is refer to a fantastic man that's sitting across from me. So, and 99% of people take my recommendation, fortunately. It's so always so loaded. That's literally why we're here, because I have a good working relationship with him Brilliant. and give him money. So, uh, so literally, that's probably, again, it's probably a pretty boring answer, but I would pass them on. I, I honestly, when it, yet, comes to, yeah, okay. when it comes to acute things, I'm more looking at getting them, um, I guess, recovered in the most uh, sure. boring fashions. So I'm looking at getting them to not fully rest, but to, you know, focus on making sure yeah. that 
they start to focus. Okay, so a lot of the injuries that I see from people, um, obviously in the general sort of sphere, come from um, overuse. Yeah. So a lot of people get into their training or people who are juggling sports and juggling um, the gym as well. Mm. Um, they sort of get the overuse stuff. So when I find people are um, overdoing it, they're also under recovering because they're not sleeping, they're not mm. eating properly, mm. and then obviously their training loads are far too high. Um, so when it comes to things like um, footballers who are doing tenopathies, apart from obviously sending them to the great man over here, or anybody to the great man over here, um, it's more a, um, it's more a, a similar sort of do what feels best sort of scenario. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some people it is hard to, it's the same as telling someone not to stretch after exercise. Yeah, sure. I'm not a big, you know, um, advisor to stretch, but some people love it. And some people turn around and say, well, I always feel better when I stretch. So if someone turns around and they say, look, you know, um, this has happened, ice, whatever it might be, yeah, if that's what they, they normally feel do. Better. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. If that's what they normally do as well. I don't like to disrupt the apple cart and sort of say to someone, you know, no, don't do that because, you know, it's not, we're not quite clear on whether it actually, it's just best to say, yeah, okay, if that works, yeah, yeah, go yeah. do it. So long as then you can focus on the other methods of recovery. Sure. Or, you know. The healing process, so like the icing, a, icing an acute ankle sprain after local footy, but then having twelve beers that night. It's my favourite. It's a oh, great it's that, and, and that's exactly sort of the example that <laughs> I, I give my general clients. In that you know you see a lot of local footballers who well getting up at ten am to go to Port Melbourne Beach when it's yeah, cold, the event to see you till five in the morning and had three hours sleeping yarn over. I've seen I've, that many times. I've been out with uh, you show your age. I've been out with mates. We've had a game of footy even this is you know last year of school but we'd have a game of footy someone bust an ankle and then we'd be out at a track until close and people would be dancing on their busted ankles yeah, yeah. and then they turn around the next day and be like oh, i'll just chuck a bit of ice on it or you know a couple of anti-inflams we're good that'll reverse the five skitter bombs and 10 red pussy oh, shots and 18 beers well exactly right well the last thing i did want to touch on from you pence is uh is recovery at the elite level and you still see on the Seven news on you know six o'clock on a Monday that you know the AFL clubs are going down to the beach and mm. getting in the freezing cold water and they're sitting in the club with their big pump recovery pants, um, you know all these things. Once again, always a Herald Sun photographer. Always, mm. always, always. You know, and all these things are a bit debated as well because once again, a lot of what we do doesn't have a heap of evidence mm. behind mm. it. Um, what what are your guidelines? What do you guys do at the elite level at the moment? What do you prioritise for for recovery? Um, so th- there's various modalities. Um, as you would know, um, and we sort of touch on a bit of everything. Um, the big rocks, and I think I'm pretty sure you guys have spoken about it multiple times, is obviously nutrition and sleep, and that's just been a massive trend. Um, uh, when I say trend, people have obviously looked at it f- for a long time, but trend to sort of uh, direct attention towards it, that that's, that's the most important thing. So we've got a really good dietitian, um, Beck Alcock. She works across a couple of um, uh, environments, and she's she directs the guys to what nutrition they need to be getting in, which is huge, and then sleep as well, um, which is something that it's it's also a bit difficult because I've seen it tracked before with sleep watches and devices, but that's counter it's counterintuitive a little bit. Do you want to track? Do you want to tell someone they've had a bad sleep? Mm. Like if they think they've had a good one. Um, so that's a huge graph. Yeah, yeah, it's a diff- I, I'm not a sleep expert by any means. I, I, I'm not across the research. I just think, yeah, sleep hygiene in terms of educating them on what they need to 
um, to do to maximise their sleep, but oh, I don't know about tracking their sleep because just let them, if they think they've had a good one, they've had a good one, but definitely sleep. So giving guys um, sleep in. So it's when games start, our um, schedule shifts. So they come in later um, of the morning, and especially on a, even if we play on a Saturday, um, by Monday morning, we're still, um, typical schedule that they run at Melbourne is they won't be in till midday. Right, that. On the Monday. Um, just because it's, whereas the old school, probably even well before um, our time of, you know, 6 a.m. start, a bit military style, mm-hmm. to teach discipline, um, I just don't think it holds up um, from the science. So those two things um, are the most important. And then I think everything else around it um, that we do at the club at least is sort of your one percenters. Again, I'm not an expert on these recovery modalities, but we do... Um, ice baths directly after a game. Um, interestingly, is um, our high-performance manager, it's driven by him, um, Burjo, uh, typically doesn't like ice baths during pre-season, um, which some of the guys don't like, because he just, again, going down the route of, we want you to adapt. We don't want to limit any inflammation that's in your in your muscles and your joints and your, lig- and your ligaments and your tendons, things. So no ice baths in pre-season, because if, you're, if you have delayed onset muscle soreness or you're a bit sore, Two days, like, doesn't really matter. You're not playing against someone on a Friday night. Yeah. But we'll do ice baths to try and limit that inflammation, to try and um, improve the recovery um, process or quicken it up. And then the beach is definitely something the next day. Something, uh, my understanding of at least what I've been taught by other people is that the, the most important thing with the water recovery is actually the depth, um, which some people get wrong. They go in just to, the, to their knees. So the temperature, um, they say around the 10 degree mark sort of is the most effective, but I think that that has less influence than the depth. So you want to be getting up to your neck if you can. Oh. As deep as you can is better. Brave, you if you are. Brave, brave. Middle of winter. Um, but I would say that I would rather someone go to a warm pool up to their neck and do some active movement through their legs and lower limbs than go into the beach up to their mid-thigh and stand still. I think you're going to get a better effect. You get... Um, the hydrostatic pressure at deeper, um, at, at uh, higher depths is down near your feet, obviously, is going to be then pump, acting as a pump to pump any metabolites back up um, to the central um, part of your body. So, yeah, definitely uh, do that. And then we've got a sauna this preseason, as I spoke about, um, which I don't think has been that common in AFL clubs. Some players do it individually, but um, the players uh, getting a sauna in um, multiple times throughout the week. Um, both for mental relaxation, muscle relaxation from the heat, um, but then also you, you do get um, a response to the um, circulatory system with an increase in blood plasma um, has been shown in, in I, I'm not even sure what papers to be honest, but I've been, again been taught that by colleagues. Um, massage as well is another one percenter the boys get, um, makes you feel better, do it. <laughs> um, and then getting moving, like I said, the flush run on the Monday, is going to be the best thing to set them up to train Wednesday. I think everyone can sort of attest to that just intuitively. Mm. You guys probably as well. Like if you've had a big training session, if you just sit on the couch, mm. how how you know much sore would you be? So yeah, spot on. Yeah, getting moving. I do know a favourite modality of yours, pencil, is a death run to the uh, to recover from a hangover. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you have a few beers the night before, and uh, there's probably science behind that. Is that? You're getting your heart pumping, you're getting your blood flowing, you know, you're getting uh, um, you know, different systems in your body firing and 
Yeah, I, I think exercise is always the answer, isn't it, Chris? Not manual therapy? No. Oh, right. Sometimes. <laughs> it depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. Um, do you think, just quickly touching on, do you think that it is, this is a tricky one, but do you think there could be too much focus on always recovering? Do you think like sometimes it can always be we're training to recover rather than actually training and recovery as a part of the process? Because like when I look at it from the outside, I'm not in the elite sector. Mm. There are so many methods of getting these players recovered. It's like how much of the time are they actually recovering rather than adapting, like mm. you say? Is there too much of a focus on that? Potentially, I suppose. Um, the alternative, so if you're... Um, if I'm correcting what you're saying, it's like you're filling a day just with lots of different things. Yeah. Yeah. The alternative is probably the guys are going to be sitting on the couch, yeah. like doing nothing. Yeah. So the argument would be on, you know, throughout the season, like the Monday and the Tuesday, for example, like, yeah, would you just keep them at home? Yeah. <laughs> and do they just sit on the couch? But yeah, it's probably the argument between the two, like which one yeah. would you, which one would yeah. you prefer? But um, I think it's just a product of that they're professional full time. They've got so much time. I think if, if it was an athlete and they said, how do I maximise my recovery? I work nine to five mm. um, as an accountant. I probably wouldn't be sending them for a sauna, an ice bath, yeah. a hot coal, a walk, a jog, etc., a massage. Um, you'd probably say, you sleep in nutrition mm. and pick one, mm. um, which would then, is it getting any less recovery than doing more modalities? Mm. I can't tell you, but... Yeah, you've got that time and resources available. I just, yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's probably not being detrimental. Yeah, cool. One more that I want to know, mate, before we uh, we do have to wrap up. We've been nearly an hour, but this chat's been awesome, Penn. So <laughs> thanks for being generous with your time. No but problem, we've got a few quick Q and A questions from the guests we want to get to. But before that, um, I want to know one, two, three, very quick. Um, your top injury prevention tips. For the everyday person, if you've got something that we can take from the elite level, from your experience, to everyday people that may have to work nine to five, best tips to prevent injuries in general? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say number one that comes to mind is consistency. Um, I think that's probably something that at least, like in the elite level, they probably have the advantage. They have time available. That's their whole um, focus um, throughout basically the whole 12 months of the year is training consistently, barring injury or illness. Um, so just training consistently and, and whatever your training is, whatever you're aiming to do, um, I just think try and keep it consistent. And I think that's pretty um, a common um, sort of answer would be amongst physios that, you know, you can reduce how, how much you're doing, you can reduce your intensity because life gets in the way, you can have a week off because you go on holiday, but, you know, as, as much as you can, um, keep up some form of training that resembles your normal. Yeah. So that would probably be my number one. Um, Number two, um, which is probably a bit more targeted um, to runners, um, just because they're probably a common general pot that we see, so people who consistently run, so to speak, would be um, strength training. And I know that you got both guys would advocate for that. Um, I think if you want to stay healthy in the long term uh, as a runner, as people are aging, or you want to up your Ks, or you want to run faster kilometres, you know, various goals, will be benefited by getting some strength training in. And that's very general. You probably have to see someone to get some advice, but getting stronger um, is never going to put you in a bad place, I think. Nice. Uh, and then number three, which we've probably, we've already touched on um, a little bit, but the recovery aspect. 
Um, I think sometimes, probably more in the amateur athletes I see than the professionals, is that they're more prone to overtraining and under-recovering than professionals. Um, probably because the professionals are so tightly monitored, they're told exactly what to do, they're never going to go and just do, well, very rarely going to go and do extra running, extra weights and, and not be guided by a professional. Whereas you'll get the, the people coming in, you guys would see it in your um, practice that um, the people, you know, training every single day and they've got two kids and they're not sleeping and they're not getting a great diet and they're wondering why they're getting bone stress or why they're getting muscle strains and things like that. So I would say um, focus on uh, recovery, but also not overtraining, which sort of go hand in hand. That You know, you're not getting fitter. Um, I've, I can't remember even who told me this as a little anecdote. was while you during your run, you're not getting fitter, and during your lift, you're not getting stronger. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the post, um, to, you know, where the adaptation occurs. So nice. Getting the recovery. Yeah, very nice. Cool. Yeah. Um, righto. We did have a, a bit of a Q&A to our listeners on Instagram, so a couple of really quick fire ones to finish. Sure. Um, Matt Pelosi, big fan of the show. Oh, he wants to know, Pencil, <laughs> um, how often do you get your hair cut? It's always perfect. Um, oh, probably monthly. Monthly? It, it might push to every three weeks if it's looking a bit fluffy. Three <laughs> weeks? Four weeks. I'd say four weeks. It's a high frequency. It's not bad. Thank you, thank you, Plots. Big shout out to Instinct Health, number one in the East. Nice. Instinct Health in Camberwell. Big fans um, of the show too. Absolutely. Um, we got a question here from an anonymous uh, staff member uh, of the North Melbourne Football Club. And they've asked, did you used to employ a physio who would steal chairs from North Melbourne to then take to your clinic? No. <laughs> Because that is such a specific question. That is a very specific yeah, question. Yeah, we assume there was a great story to this, yeah. seeing this question come in on the Insta. No, I, I didn't employ a physio at oh, North Melbourne. No no chair-stealing stories? Don't have any chairs from North Melbourne in your clinic? No. Well, I don't actually know where that's come from. <laughs> maybe someone just fired that just as a... Maybe another physio at North Melbourne did that. Mm. Not that I'm aware of. That stumped us all. Yeah. Moving on. You thought that was going to be a great story. <laughs> some chairs. I was so confused with the chair stealing story. Oh, yeah, it's stumped me. It's been waiting all week since I got the questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to find out who that was. Yeah. Damn. Um, Glenn Whittakin wants to know Is Brenton lacing on the boots for Ferry Panola at some stage this year? Uh, Glenn Whittakin. The, the, the lightning halfback flanker. Uh, I'll probably have a kick around like I did last year. Unfortunately, my work I works uh, Saturdays when the Mighty D's are playing. Um, but yeah, I'll have a game when I've got a Saturday off. Get nice. down there. You playing, Chris? Uh, not sure, mate. I'm a bit on the fence this year, actually. I've heard this could be his final year. Yeah, you said that for the last five. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Thursday before round one. He always He's turns up. Always turns up. Yeah. The coach of uh, Hampton Rovers has been knocking on my door every night trying to get me down. So mm-hmm. I've heard it's easy to go. When did I, when did I become the coach? <laughs> um, one more question from one you, Joe White. Uh, so Tom Sauce has asked, tomato sauce, fridge of the pantry. Tom Sauce is asked. Is that, is that, you have a follower called Tom, Tom sauce, sauce on Instagram? Tom Sauce. Um, Thomas. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> <laughs> This is about the thing of the podcast. Well, I don't miss one, mate. It's, oh, it's, okay. it's black or white. Hey, hey, what does it depend on? No, nah, honestly, which it sounds boring, I do not mind. 
Oh. I think it's in the fridge at, at my Dang. place. It's in the fridge. Uh, I, it doesn't bother me. I love tomato sauce, pantry or fridge. So if it doesn't bother you, does that mean your gorgeous fiance Chloe is responsible for putting it in the fridge? Yeah, I'd say so. Nice. Nice. More hygienic probably lasts longer, does it? Expiry date? Yeah. That's probably why she's put it in there. Shout out to Chloe, but I've lost respect for you, Chloe. You know what's great? We've had, <laughs> You're we've a pantry man. We've asked three, 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 three people in three interviews, yeah. and every single one has given us a different answer. Yeah. Oh, a little... There's, there's two fridge answers. Pan, fridge there's, pantry there's and two answers. And we've had three. That's great. What a question. Um, this has been brilliant. I've, yeah. loved, I've loved this chat. Um, thanks so much for, for being generous um, with your time, Pencil, and, no uh, and for chewing the fat with us tonight. Chewing the fat, the famous podcast. Maybe we'll get another listener in Kazakhstan. Hope so. Yeah. Maybe one in Norwich City. <laughs> Norwich City. No, thanks, guys. Love to expand. Appreciate it, man.